Tonight at 10, the voters decide that after four decades, it's time for Britain to leave the European Union. We will cease to be full members of the single market and the customs union. And it will be the final decision. And if anybody's in any doubt, we are going to leave the European Union on the 29th of There March, won't be another referendum on Europe. This is it. So I'm a great believer in evidence-based policymaking as opposed to policy-based evidence. So I think it's really important in evaluating options to have a clear sense of what the rough orders of magnitudes will be, which sectors will be affected, which groups within society, even which regions within a country. To do that, you need to do some empirical work, you need to look at some numbers and to derive some estimates. And so, what I hope we achieve by doing this work is both providing reasonable estimates of those sorts of effects, but also training government officials to be able to do this sensible analysis better themselves. And it's to improve the quality of analysis being done by government in order to make better policy decisions. You're listening to Impacted. University of Sussex, podcast series about research for real change. Welcome to Impacted, the podcast series about research for real change. Each episode showcases researchers here at the University of Sussex and considers the impact their work is having in the world. I'm Suzanne Fisher-Murray. And my name's Will Hood. And today we are featuring Michael Gassiorek. Michael is Professor of Economics at the University of Sussex, a Managing Director of the company Interanalysis, and a Fellow of the UK Trade Policy Observatory. He's a leading authority in understanding the mechanisms by which trade affects people's lives. Michael's work has informed policymakers about the potential risks and benefits of trade decisions and his company Interanalysis offers support on policy and trade negotiations. And yes, in part, we are talking about Brexit, the unavoidable magnetic centre of discussions about trade that all other subjects get drawn back to eventually. But more of that later. To start off with, we asked Michael how he defined trade. So the way I use the word trade, it means the buying or selling of either a good or a service across uh, international borders, across countries. So if I buy some French cheese, effectively that French cheese is being imported and that's an act of trade. If I hire an Indian software engineer to design some bit of kit for me abroad in India, then I am buying a service from that Indian software engineer And effectively, again, I am importing a service now. So you can either import and export goods and services, and that's what I mean by international trade. Why is it important that people uh, have an understanding of this as as a thing that is integral to their lives? It doesn't make sense for countries to themselves to produce every good that they wish to consume. Some countries are simply relatively better at producing things than us. 
And some countries produce things that we just can't do, such as bananas. So for our everyday lives, it's really important that we buy and sell goods with other countries. It increases our real welfare, our GDP in the economy, because we can buy things from countries that produce it more efficiently than we do, and we can sell things to countries of stuff that we produced more efficiently. So it raises everybody's economic welfare. The most obvious example of that is that leaving the EU for the UK involves increasing trade costs between us and the EU, and that's widely acknowledged, including by the government. And that increase in trade costs means that we will trade less, and that reduces our real incomes, everybody's real incomes. So the price of things that we import from the EU will go up, the price of things that we export to the EU will go up, so that means we will export less, and the stuff that we are buying, the prices might go up. So, just to clarify with those points, nobody's in disagreement about that. Everybody's on the same page, are they? That the reduction of trade in this way will reduce economic prosperity. There's almost nobody who is in disagreement with that. As I say, even the government. Only last week they published estimates of how much changing border procedures, the increase in costs that that will involve for firms and the total estimates of that range from about 11 to 15 billion pounds per year so these are big changes in trade costs so nobody's in disagreement with that those that are very keen on the uk leaving the eu also argue that as a result of leaving the eu we will be able to sign trade deals with other countries non-eu countries such as the us such as Canada, such as Australia, and that there will be tremendous benefits from being able to trade on freer terms with those countries. I don't buy that story, but it is the story that is being told. Roughly 50% of our trade is with the EU. Roughly 12% of our trade is with the US. So if our trade goes down, by, I don't know, 2% with the EU. I'm plucking that figure out of thin air. It's going to be more than that. But even if it was just 2% with the EU, as a result of Brexit, we would have to increase our trade with the US by more than 6 or 7% just to stay even. That ain't going to happen. Why is analysing international trade so complex? Why is making confident predictions about these things so difficult? I think making any economic predictions is difficult. It's, if you like, crystal ball gazing. And it's very hard to look into the future and to know exactly what will happen, how firms and individuals will respond. So in order to put some actual estimates, some numbers on this, We have to construct models which have all sorts of assumptions, all sorts of simplifications. It's a bit like, you know, creating a map. You know, we can't model reality on a scale of one to one in our economic models, just like a map on a scale of one to one would not be useful. So we have to make assumptions. We have to simplify things. And in that act of simplification, you know, one always loses a little bit of reality and different people 
in their models choose to simplify things in different ways and that's partly why you end up with different numbers. Michael has pioneered a software product called TradeSift. The software allows the analysis of trade data without the need for complicated modelling or highly skilled economists. We started by asking how the idea for TradeSift came about. Working as an academic trade economist, um, in particular from the late 90s and into the noughties, um, I, did, I was involved in, in a fair number of studies evaluating the impact of changes in trade policy and notably the EU signing free trade agreements with countries. So the EU decides to sign a free trade agreement, let's say with Morocco or with Tunisia or whatever. Part of the analysis of that is to say, well, what is the impact of that, both in aggregate for the economy and on specific sectors? In doing that work, I realized that we were often doing the same sorts of calculations but on different numbers. It might be for different years or different countries and so on. But there was an element of the work that was quite repetitive. And what it involved was downloading large amounts of data and then filtering that data, organizing that data, understanding that data, often using Excel. And it was a very time-consuming process. One of the reasons it's time-consuming is that there is a lot of data. So if you look at, for example, the UK's trade, you can either look at total trade or you can break it down into broad groups, chemicals, textiles, cars, and so on, or you can go into finer levels of disaggregation. A commonly used fine level of disaggregation has just over 5,000 products in it. So if I want to understand the consequences for the UK, hypothetically of now signing a free trade agreement with the US, I need to look at data for up to 5,000 products for imports, 5,000 products for exports, but I also want to think about how this changes over time. So I might want this for several years. I also want to think about how the UK is trading with the US in comparison to other countries. So now I also need to do this with other countries. I'm rapidly getting into hundreds and thousands of rows of data, which I need to think about making sense of in some intelligible way. And because we were doing this repeatedly, together with colleagues at Sussex, we realized that what was needed was a bit of kit that automates that process, that makes it much easier to sift through data, which is why ultimately our product is called TradeSift. It's about sifting through data in an intelligent way um, and to really speed up the process. And we probably thought of this first around 2008, 2009. We thought this was a great idea tried to get funding for this, either from government or from the university or from donors, and say, look, we think this is really worthwhile. Nobody would fund this. So what we ended up doing was investing some of our own time and capital to, to write a prototype of this to show how it would work. We found it hard for people to understand what it was we were suggesting. So we did a prototype. We actually showed this to leading people working on trade in the British government. And I remember to this day, um, a senior trade official in the British government banging her fist on the table and saying, we need this. 
we need to have something like this. So we managed to get a little bit of funding for a pilot project from the government. We set up a company, university invested some funds, and that's how the company started. It enabled us to have the initial funding to write the software, which essentially does what I just described to you. It makes it much easier to analyze international trade data and to draw meaningful conclusions from that data. So I believe DFID was one of the early interested parties in developing the software. What was the objective for them, do you think? From their point of view, it was to help capacity building in developing countries. So many of the training courses that we have run and which we were proposing to DFID were training courses for civil servants, um, officials working in trade ministries or foreign office ministries or agricultural ministries in developing countries to essentially train them in basic principles of international trade and how to use their data to understand their trade better and to understand how to formulate policy, what their priorities might be. Do you have any concrete examples of what the software has enabled policymakers to do? So it doesn't enable them to do anything that they couldn't do before. It's not as if we have invented something new. In the first instance, it saves a tremendous amount of time, but obviously the training also helps them to focus on what the key priorities are. So if you want specific examples, the most obvious examples, the most natural examples are many countries have over the last 10 years or so thought about signing free trade agreements. It might be, for example, with the EU. Um, the EU was encouraging, keen on signing what were called economic partnership agreements with a lot of African countries in Eastern Africa, in West Africa as well. And there was a need to analyze for these countries what might be the implications of signing these agreements. What our software does is enables the officials to, to undertake that analysis in ways that would have been much harder before and in ways where it was easy to make mistakes before. So it helps to formulate also negotiate priorities. So I want to come on to the training and the capacity building a little bit more. And you, you touched on some of that there. But just before we move on to that, I'd like to ask you about the TAPES uh, partial equilibrium software. Are you able to tell me what this is, uh, what it does, and again, you know, some of its origin story, and how is it different from the TradeSift software? The tape software is quite different because it involves setting up a formal mathematical quantitative model which uses real data but tries to predict what might be the future impact of a change in trade policy. So trade shift, if you like, is ex post. It's looking at existing data and inferring things from it. And it's less formal. It's more um, intelligent, descriptive statistics. Tapes is what's called a partial equilibrium model, which attempts to predict what might happen in the future. Because it's more formal, involves probably a slightly higher skill set to operate. So you, you would need to be an economist and with some knowledge of 
you know, more than some knowledge of trade in order to sensibly use such a model. So it requires, and, and often requires a, a sort of team, a small team of people. So um, not all trade ministries or teams have the capacity to do that sort of work. Whereas TradeSift was designed to be really useful to policymakers, but not requiring the same degree, if you like, of training and background. So let's talk now about training and capacity building. Since 2013, you have run at least 13 training courses in India, Pakistan, East, West and Southern Africa, the Ukraine and also in the UK. What were the trainings on and how have they built capacity with civil servants and policymakers? Okay, so what actually happens in a typical one week training course is that we will do a range of activities with the participants. First of all, we will talk to them about the basic principles of international trade, why international trade can lead to gains for economies, but also lead to some sectors and individuals winning and losing. So while there might be overall gains, there might be distributional effects. We spend a lot of time about principles of international trade. And for example, um, talking a lot of making sure they understand about how free trade agreements are negotiated and what's typically included in a free trade agreement and what the issues are. We also do work with them, showing them how to use the software. And then there's an awful lot of practical, if you like, experiential learning. So the participants are working with the software, downloading the data that they need to work on the software, doing a particular piece of analysis such that by the end of the week, each group will have done a piece of analysis and will give a presentation to the entire cohort and say, this is what we've been working on, this is what we've learned. So we make it as practical as possible, but focused around specific issues. But how would this actually change the processes that were there pre this training? I would hope that what our training does is partly makes them understand and opens people's eyes to the broader set of issues that are important when considering international trade. So there's that, if you like, conceptual informative element as part of the training, but then it gives them a tool to enable them to think through those issues for their country in ways that they couldn't do before, or certainly in ways that are much quicker than before. So let me give you one example. We've written a module for the Pakistani Ministry of Commerce, which gives them a self-standing online version of our training, where we've recorded some of our material, uploaded the material onto a virtual learning environment. And they are now planning for the next few years to use that as part of their baseline training for new trade officials coming into their ministry and working on trade issues. So we're forming part of that core training that will be received in the Pakistani Ministry of Commerce. In that situation, and perhaps any other examples you can think of, has there been much feedback, anecdotal feedback, about how it has improved their processes? The feedback we usually get, almost invariably get, is 
extremely positive. Whenever we do these training courses, we get very, very high evaluation scores about the quality of the training and how useful it was for their work. You know, usually something like you know, 80 to 85% of participants saying, yes, they ex expect to use this in their daily work and so on. So we get very high evaluation scores. What's very hard to ascertain, and actually we don't have good data on this, is ex post, you know, several months, several years down the line, the extent to which that is still the case. So we do know that the software has been repeatedly used in various countries, such as Ukraine, such as Pakistan, such as India, and so on, for ongoing analyses. But often these may be internal analyses, confidential sometimes, which we're not party to. To move on to the closer to home subject of Brexit, um, to bring, bring that subject back again, it never seems too far away. Since the Brexit vote in 2016, you've been training the UK government to enhance analysis of trade scenarios. So tell me what you've been doing there. Yeah. So what we've been doing is we've done various bits of training generically on trade policy and understanding trade data. A lot of the training we've done has been on understanding trade statistics and understanding how to do trade modelling. We haven't used the TradeSit software in government, and government don't currently use the TradeSit software. What we have done is delivered a version of the TAPES model, that's this model that does the future simulations, to the Department of International Trade for them to use as part of their evaluations of future free trade agreements. So we've trained their team members on how to do this modelling, We've written a model for them so that they can use it in-house and they are using the model for their own internal assessments of free trade. OK, fascinating. So without making this overtly political, clearly we are and have already left Europe and this will be actioned on the, um, the beginning of 2021. But are there any examples, concrete or, or otherwise, where people have shifted their position um, from a more ideological place because of the data. Is that something you experience where people actually change their mind on from political perspectives because they have received data from software like this? Um, no, not to my knowledge. Yeah, let me put it slightly differently. Um, you know, the process of policy making is highly complicated and often very political. So it's not as if a particular piece of work or research suddenly changes policy. That's extremely rare. Impact just doesn't happen like that. That's not the way policy is made. Um, it's much more complex than that. I would also say that um, a lot of the evidence-based, the analysis, is well understood by civil servants, certainly in the UK government, um, who I think generally do a fantastic job. It's harder to get politicians to understand uh, the evidence underpinning different policy decisions. So what I think the sort of work that we do does, it makes it much harder for politicians to make ridiculous and unsubstantiated claim. 
you know, doing evidence-based work makes it harder for politicians to make claims which are unreasonable. So two or three years ago, there were probably many more politicians that were prepared to argue about how wonderful Brexit would be for the overall economic impact of the economy. Even probably Michael Gove now would no longer make those statements. The recent things he's been saying is just, we understand that there will be a cost, but there will also be opportunities. So part of the sort of work that we do provides a reality check out there. We do a lot of interaction with media and I'm now moving on to the UK Trade Policy Observatory work, by the way, less so the company. But we do a lot of engagement with stakeholders and with media, which simply provides a stronger evidence base to test the claims made by politicians or some politicians. Michael's tape software has also caught the attention of the national media, bringing us back to Brexit once again. The tapes, partial equilibrium model that we were discussing earlier, we were contacted sometime last year by Newsnight to run some simulations for them, to, you know, to, to run the model, that's what I mean when I say run some simulations, to think about what might be the impact, the, the potential gain from the UK signing a free trade agreement with the US. And so we did some work with and for Newsnight on this, which they then put up you know, as one of their Newsnight programmes. So, Michael, I believe you are also a fellow of the UKTPO, which is the UK Trade Policy Observatory. Can you tell us what that is and how it came about? So, my colleague, Professor Alan Winters, had the idea of setting up the UK Trade Policy Observatory the day after the referendum. The university was extremely responsive to this, and we essentially got it going. We had a meeting, and we got it going that day. So the UK Trade Policy Observatory dates from immediately after the referendum. And I should also say it's in partnership or in association with the Royal Institute for International Affairs, also known as Chatham House, which is one of the most influential sort of think tanks on international relations and international issues. Um, so it's, you know, we've only... The UK Trade Policy Observatory has only been in existence since the referendum. But very rapidly, I think, we established ourselves as one of the go-to independent um, organisations thinking about making good trade policy. And we already had reasonably good contacts with government. We've already had some contacts with med some of the media outlets, and we've just worked hard on fostering and developing those relationships. You know, so we talk, you know, it's not as if we're out, how can I put it? Our aim is not to be out there criticizing the government, not at all. We work a lot with civil servants. So we do a lot of work with government departments. We do a lot of engagement with media. We do a lot of work with business stakeholders as well. If you like, what the UK Trade Policy Observatory does is meant to be an interface of academic work and policy work. So that involves a lot of policy engagement. Michael is also the Managing Director of Interanalysis, a university spin-out company, which offers support on trade policy and trade negotiations, in particular for developing countries. 
So what are the costs and benefits of managing a commercial company whilst also being a full-time academic? Yes, so we set up the business, as I explained earlier, because actually we couldn't get funding to do what we wanted to do. And when I say we, it's largely myself, my colleague, Professor Jim Rollo, and my colleague, Dr. Peter Holmes. You know, three academics working on these issues who wanted to develop this software. So we set up the company Internalysis in order to be able to do this. Um, and if you like, everything flowed from there. How has it been? It's been fantastic. It's also been incredibly challenging. I mean, to put it bluntly, essentially, I've had almost two full-time jobs. It's very time-consuming to run a company and to also continue my full-time job as an academic working for the University of Sussex. It's been extremely rewarding. It's been personally, it's been fantastic to travel around the world and to deliver all these training courses. But also, I genuinely believe that we have done good in inverted commas, if that's not a naive thing to say, in so doing. We have built capacity. We have done some training. We have um, improved the level of analysis that I think can be done in those countries and within the UK. And that's very rewarding. I'm not in the business of being an academic just to be in an ivory tower. I'm in the business of being an academic in order to hope shed light on how the world works and possibly improve it a little bit, even if it's only a tiny bit.